0: Hello, hello, welcome to your buddy John podcast. Got a great show for you. My good friend Mr. Robbie V is going to come on and chat with us. Robbie is a guitar slinging singer-songwriter and uh, he's got great music out there of his own. He also happens to be the son of Bobby V, a famous pop star from the 1960s who had many hits including Take Good Care of My Baby, Devil or Angel... A night of a Thousand Eyes, and More Than I Can Say, amongst many others. I'm really looking forward to talking with Robbie, so let's get to it right now. Welcome, Robbie V., the Prince of Twang, to your Buddy John podcast. Uh, great to have you, Robbie. How are you doing there in Minnesota?
1: I'm doing good. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Appreciate oh,
0: it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, um, for anybody that doesn't know uh, Bobby V., he has a great uh, tie-in with uh, Buddy Holly, uh, Bobby... Uh, well, I'll let you tell this story, Robbie. You probably know it way better than I do, but um, I think a lot of people may not know this. Um, how was Bobby V tied into the the day the music died?
1: So he, the story goes, the legend goes, he, he filled in the night that Buddy Holly um, passed away. <clears throat> the the Winter Dance Party Tour, which the, the legacy of that that you're involved in. Um, <clears throat> Holly had just played the surf ballroom, um, February 2nd, 1959, and chartered a plane to go up to the Fargo-Moorhead area for the next night, February 3rd. And um, as Don McLean put the song, The Day the Music Died, um, Holly was on that plane, and and of course, Richie Valens and um, J.P. Richardson, the pilot, they they never made it to their destination, and the Moorhead Armory, had sent out um, on the radio, you know, the show must go on, and, and then <clears throat> um, Charlie Boone, who became a real successful radio guy in the Midwest after that, um, he called for for local talent to show up, and it was, my dad showed up with his band, The Shadows, and they filled in that night. My father had tickets to that show, um, and and thought he was going to see his hero that night, ended up filling in, and from that, he, he launched his career. He had 38 top starting hits in the Billboard and um, went on to become, as one star went down, another one rose, I guess you could put it, a bittersweet eating.
0: Right, right. Um, that's amazing. So Bobby was just uh, listening to the radio when uh, he heard this call for uh, a performer to go on?
1: Yeah, he was 15 years old. Wow. He's never performed live before and went up and did that and, and um, you know, into to a, a, a crowd of that were that a lot of them were finding out on the spot that Holly had passed and that the three stars that had passed. And um I mean if you look at the, the time period, it, it was the top three artists of the of the pop charts. So I mean, it was like you, you couldn't even imagine how what that the impact on um on uh, on what it meant to people at that right. time. Right. I mean,
0: can it, you can you imagine Robbie being fifteen years old and <laughs> having the the courage and the wherewithal to just uh to Go perform in that kind of uh, on that kind of a night that's that's pretty incredible when you think about well, it.
1: Well, you know, and, and he was he was, a, he was an introvert, and I've said this before in other interviews and stuff. But my dad was a was an introvert, he, he had this huge personality <clears throat> as a star around people, and and he could turn it on. But in his personal life, he was very introverted. And he he, he the, what he remembers from that, uh, <clears throat> other than the sadness, just how nervous he was, he said it was like the most. Nervous thing he'd ever done in his life. I just, can
0: imagine. I can imagine that um, just
1: wow. Somebody in Colorado sent me photos from that night, and they were the only ones that really existed. And um, <clears throat> um, one of them, you know, my dad sitting b- along the backstage watching Waylon Jennings um, do a tribute to Richie Valens, and you could just kind of see he was just a young kid, and you know, sitting on the side with his arms, you know, kind of. <clears throat> looking nervous can't believe he's there it's interesting you know it's an insight into history
0: right right did he ever talk about it with you at all
1: um he did he, he had and um he became a talking point you know with the record label and and it seemed like it came up you know when he got he got hired <clears throat> he, he got signed to liberty records to j.i. and snuffy garrett who was a p- producing buddy holly in those last sessions um he got signed to liberty through through them and um, so he had a lineage of records that Holly probably would have recorded some of that. They're Bill Building records, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so he, JI, was instrumental in my dad's career from the the beginning to the end. They were buddies, and so it seemed like in, in his interviews and 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 when conversations came up, there was a lot to talk about around that. And that particular night, you know, he'll he'll talk about like his his brother Bill was the guitar player for the Shadows, Bobby V in the Shadows. And like he, he didn't even have a guitar strap for his guitar. You know, it's a three-par from <laughs> Waylon wow. Jennings. And um, just that it was so spontaneous. And, and he was backstage, and uh, Charlie Boone <clears throat> asked, you know, what's the name of the band? And, and my dad just said The Shadows. You know, he, he, they didn't even have to talk about a name. But wow. he, he chose the name of his dog at the time, his uh, junior shepherd <laughs> dog. Wow. And, uh, and j- just really um, very spontaneous, very... Not expecting any of this to happen today, right. like many people that showed up, and um, yeah. So it's it's a fascinating thing, and he does. He talks about how just William Jennings and, and um Tommy Allsop and, and the crew that just Dion and they just look so um, so tired and, and so uh, sad. Just really, just an overwhelming amount of of sadness. And, oh um, yeah, it was just incredible that they even did the show. And um, it's almost like they weren't in their bodies," he said. And um, wow. he just seemed shocked, like total shock. And, and, and years later, I remember being on a cruise ship, uh, on a you know these package show cruise ships with my dad when I was working with him. And um, and he would and he, we were sitting down in the international continental bar with Dion. And Dion said to my dad, "You know, I I don't can you tell me about that night? Yeah, because I don't have any memory of it." Wow. You just flat out said that to my dad, and I don't have any memory of that night. And um, I just think that I think it, it was a crew of, you know, they're all kids at that time, you know, and um, young adults. And I think they were just shocked, just not even in their bodies, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's almost, um, I think about it, and I think it's almost kind of cruel that the uh, promoters, made that show go on that night. You know what I mean? It's almost like, um... uh, you
1: know, even, even the, the tour itself, the, the winter dance party tour, which um, if you think about the the promotional company and the people behind that, yeah, the, just the tour itself was so, <clears throat> it, it was tough to tour back then for a lot of reasons, but in the Midwest in, in February is probably the harshest weather, uh, the harshest elements. The fact that they were in school buses and all that kind of stuff, the way they toured with the the routing and all that, it just it, it almost was a perfect storm from the start. Yeah, it's amazing that that a promotional company would, would think so little of. This is just my opinion, of course, but would think so little of the artist and and were more interested, in my opinion, in making the money. You know, oh, yeah. even the way they carried on after Holly died, they, they made a lot of promises they didn't keep to William yeah. Jennings and other people, and it just there was a heartless element that that led to the outcome, which is just so devastating. And back, you know, back then artists, they toured differently than they do today. It's just a different, was a different program.
0: Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. Holly, different.
1: Holly was bucking the system by renting a plane, you know, totally. I remember my dad saying that the opening artist that night, February 3rd was a young kid and he sang by himself a Um, you, you know, you got the whole world in your hands. Hmm. I got the whole world in my hands. That's how you open the night. Oh, wow. Um, which is very, um, that within itself says it all, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. Wow. It's it would have been your dad's 80th birthday this coming Sunday. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yep. Amazing. That's right. Happy birthday, Bobby.
1: Yeah. Happy, happy birthday remembered. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, um, after that time frame, when Bobby, uh, became recognized and whatnot, and he, uh, he moved to, to Bel Air. Is that correct?
1: So the Holly thing became that night became kind of a, a talking point for, for promotional, you know, record companies, always hang on to pieces to sure. kind of, um, promote the artist. So that became kind of a, a launching point and today. You know, it's kind of a talking point, I guess. Um, we're talking about it. We went down to, um, Soma Records in, in Minneapolis, and he cut "Suzy Baby" and and three other songs that day, and "Suzy Baby" became a, a, a number one regional hit, and then it became a hit on the West Coast in San Diego, and uh, my dad wrote the song, <clears throat> and San Diego hit the charts, um and my dad flew there to do a sock hop, and Gai was living in LA at the time with Snuff Garrett cutting records, uh you know, the Wrecking Crew, all that stuff going on in early sixties, <laughs> and and um in um, Los Angeles and Liberty records signed my dad and he became um, an interesting thing. Cause Eddie Cochran was on the label. Um, who's a rocker. My, my dad got signed to the label. Um, besides that, it was, it was kind of a label that did novelty records for movies and that kind of stuff. Um, really? They were the only two rockers. And, um, but my dad went with the label. They, they, they started making records with them and, and he had a short stint down in um, Clovis, New Mexico, Petty. so they signed him j.i brought my dad to, to snuff garrett and said, let's bring him down to holly studio oh,
0: wow. and my
1: dad cut a record down there and the uh snuff and snuff garrett my dad's producer and um and um holly's producer um they didn't really get along and they didn't agree on stuff and and so holly um, um snuff garrett at that point decided that he wanted to take my dad to LA and cut pop records and, and kind of it, it became at that point it became Bobby V as opposed to Bobby V in the shadows. Sure. And I think the Bobby V in the shadow thing that was the Norman Petty studio and all that Norman Petty and that could have been something and it was based off of Susie baby and doing more records like that but I think Snuff saw a different potential in my dad other than a rockabilly artist because that's really what it, what he started out to be and decided you know you should be a pop rockabilly artist a pop artist and so that you know, he went to Liberty Records, um, started recording. I <clears> think <throat> um, the, the the crickets were on a lot of his early records. Um, Sonny Curtis co-wrote a lot of songs with my dad, and he was a part of that that whole machine. Wow! Started cranking up hit after hit. He, and he was 15 years old. He uh, was 15. He got signed to to Liberty Records. Devil or Angel, which was a top ten hit worldwide, uh, came out when he was 16, and um, he was living in LA at that point and um, putting out records.
0: And the music business, uh, as far as what, you know, was trending uh, was kind of heading, rock and roll was kind of heading at that point to kind of a more poppy kind of, what was becoming popular. The sounds were were more pop oriented than, um, you know, like Chuck Berry kind of stuff, right?
1: You know, Bob Dylan had a good quote about that. True rock and roll era was from 56 to 64. That, yeah. that was the rock and roll era. Yeah. Yeah. Everything changed. That Everything. Like, that's the first generation of, of rock and roll. Everything after that was recycled. Um, it was a progression from, you know, look at the Carl Perkins simplicity of, of, of rock pop to, you know, from Elvis to, to all the way to, um, guys like my dad who had these huge orchestras, um, right. playing behind them. Which was, so. Uh, so which it, was kind it, of
0: a direction that Buddy Holly was going towards too. I remember, um, hearing an interview with him where he said, uh, they asked him, if, they, he's, they asked him do you, buddy, do you think rock and roll is going to uh, continue on? Because people didn't know back then if it was just going to yeah. fade away. And he said, well, i prefer to, he said, I don't know, maybe another six months, but i prefer to play something a little quieter anyway.
1: Well, I mean, that that was the out, that's how the, the outlook was at that point. And, and you look at um, a lot of those artists, I mean, <clears throat> if you think of how different the record business is now than then, I mean, if you think about, the first record play, the first million-selling record was a Roy Rogers record, and only uh, 300 record players sold at the time. But wow. yet, it was a, a million people bought the record. Right. And um, so, so the delivery systems now today, everything's a delivery system. You know, your phone is. Yeah. So it's it, just a different to have a million seller back in, in in that first generation of music, is very different than um, than today. And at the same token, you know that. Time period um, was, you know, Apple Pie, Chevrolet, um, <clears throat> you know, Burl Cream, Little Dabble do ya It was just a real Amer- America um, in, in a different place. Yeah. You know, a feel-good music. It wasn't heady. You know, the Bob Dylans kind of hadn't really wandered into the world with with poems and, and rock and roll. It was more like um, we're going to go dancing and we're going to have a good time and I love you. Do you love me back? You know, it, it was just a, a simple time of of music that kind of hits you in the gut hits you in the heart it, it created a memory is more about my memories you know than than, than getting heady with music and right. then after 64 it, it you know kind of fell into how clever can we be with rock and roll before that it was just you know what feels good and um and I, that's why i like it you know it makes you you want to tap your foot you want to jump around the room he makes you want to pick up the guitar and play. Yeah. It's just feel good music from the gut. And, um, that's who my dad was. He was that guy.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, you, you, you booked me on a gig with him once. I can't remember where it was, but man, what a, he was such a nice man and such a, uh, you know, I learned a lot from just working with him that one night where I saw how he dealt with uh, his fans after the show. And, um, He was so genuine with them and so, uh, you know, friendly and so personable with his people in the audience. I I just was, I just admired it a lot, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And
1: um, well, he, he would, you know, I'll give you a quote that that my mom gave me. Um, um, You know, my dad, my dad was was friends with everybody. Yeah. People come up to you. you I'll be on the run. Like, you know, I was really good friends with your dad. I'll look at him and I'll kind of go, you know, I know you were. You know, there's something that there's a connection there that you're going to tell me about in three seconds, and I'm going to totally get it. Yeah, and and, and it's and it, and it never fails. Um, he he grew up, you know, not you know he, he wasn't he grew up in a family with you know he took showers at the school. You know, they, they, it was a very poor family. Yeah, not a lot of opportunity. And when he moved out as a kid he went to the um, office and asked, you know, from the guidance counselor, should I, should I take this opportunity to live records? You know, I want to be an artist I want to do paintings for a living and them knowing his circumstance that he really didn't have a lot of opportunity ahead of him. um encouraged him to do it. You know? Right. And so he, he was on his own very young and my mom would say that he bonded with the world. Like his, his family uh, became the world. He'd right. go out and do these shows, and he, and he would meet people and go have coffee and hang out afterwards at their house and meet their parents. You know, <laughs> it, 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 he literally became like like um, his family became became the world. And I I'm, I could tell you stories about me. I mean, I broke down in Kansas City one time on the road, and I went to a hotel. I was broke. I was yeah. putting my last penny trying to get my my truck fixed. He at the hotel was a huge Bobby V fan and had a story about meeting him and how nice he was to her. And you just stay here for free
0: wow. you just stay here for
1: free until until your truck's fixed <laughs> yeah, that's great. The hotel for free on this lady that that managed the hotel because she was a huge Bobby v fan and that's like it, it's it's kind of like yeah my family's taking care of me Yeah, you know yeah and yeah. that's how I look at my dad's my dad's success like yeah you know and, and being taken care of by his family because people just and they could tell you know I've known your dad for this many years and and they'll tell me you to all these situations that you know my dad taking an interest in their family and and, you know it just it's really there's a heart level that my dad carried it carried his life with
0: yeah uh, yeah what was it like growing up in uh because you grew up in bel-air initially uh, yeah with uh him it was when you were going to school and stuff um did your friends at school go like wow your dad's a famous pop star i mean what was that like uh having him as a, uh, pop star, as a, as a father.
1: I knew I grew up in an, with my dad either gone, um, or he was home being musical. So I knew that, that his job was really important to him. Yeah. And I knew that, that he had, he had a very, he's kind of, he was kind of like you, I mean, um, where you have a lot of talent and you have a lot of, uh, knowing about the business. Um, but when you go to work, you go, you go to work like you're a lawyer you have a briefcase and then you, you dot your i's across your t's and you're very professional um he was like that too and as far as i saw he was conducting a very professional business that he cared a lot about and um i, I was aware that we you know we lived in a neighborhood with other um you know a lot of people were big professionals and they're they're very successful and my dad was the rock and roll singer and you know, I was also aware that my teachers and the people in my school were fans of his. Yeah. So it, it was it was very odd. You know, I'd, I'd always have a, an eye on me um, <laughs> from these, these people that that would kind of I'm always looking at my shoulder and i you know people are staring at me. Yeah. And um, so I, I was aware of, of of that kind of attention really early on. At the end of the day, you know. Um, I really have nothing to compare it to. Right, you know, I, right. I remember, I remember, I think when, when I first recognized that he was, that he was a star, meant a lot um, was when, uh, you know, one of those uh, Hollywood tour buses came to the, to the driveway. And people <laughs> wanted to take pictures of the house. And I was on my big wheel at the end of the driveway and Hey, is your dad home? You know, it's like, he just gotten off <laughs> the road. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. And you're still in bed, you know? Because that's how he was—he was up late and sleep in. Yeah, and um, and I yeah, I, I can go. He's in bed, but I can go get him. You know? and <laughs> <laughs> it was like that kind of thing, and so it was like, why are these people at the end of the driveway?
0: Right, yeah. right, right. It's it's my dad here, and why? why yeah, that's interesting. That's funny.
1: You had like a UPS delivery, and it's like, yeah, I'll go get him. He can sign for it. That kind of nonchalant, unknowing, you sure, know, naive. When
0: did you start? uh What age do you remember that you started? um Taking an interest in music, like playing guitar. And um, was that, did your dad encourage that or did you just kind of pick it up on your own?
1: You know, when you grow up with a father that's, you know, in the record business, that's really what he was in the record business. Yeah. Um, he, you know, my mother was so protective of him. Um, You know, they were married all the way to the end and, and they met when they were 15. And wow. she she was there when Susie Baby just came out, and, and so she watched the whole journey, and, and she was his kind of his backbone.
0: Sure. So she
1: was real protective of him, and you know, always had an issue with the record label or the managers how they, you know. Were treat you know they keep them on the road so that to make money for the manager, so he, he wouldn't do TV and, and do some of these things she thought he should do, and, and so you know being a workhorse, you know she she always had these comments about the industry side and how they were treating them, and she was real protective. Yeah. So what happened was my mom really didn't want me to go into music, and I remember as a kid she would say this to me: "I'd you know, it'd be great if you." didn't do the music business because she was so really didn't want any of his kids to go into the music business. Right. And, um, because she was kind of the protector. So, you know, my dad would lead guitars around the house and and he, I was always musical and always playing. And, um, he, he just had, had a, a music would ooze out of him because of that. It was just like undeniable that I was going to get into music because I would grab a guitar and and try and tune it and try and play songs. And, just really one of those things that, that it, it was—it it was so much a part of our household that um, it, it just was inevitable. But my, I was—it was very clear that my mom didn't want me to go into music, and it became a bit of a um, a process. Sure, like, like, I, my first guitar wasn't just given to me—you know—I had to really, really earn it. I had to really take an interest. I had to really be stick it for a while. And it was, it was a bit of a reluctant, um, kind of like my own personal journey because sure. she didn't, she, she didn't want me to ever be a Bobby V impersonator, put it that way. Yeah, you know, yeah, she really yeah. wanted me to be an individual in the world and, and find my own way and do my own thing. So when I did finally get into music, it was almost like, um, you know, she, she, she did welcome it. Um, and my dad welcomed it. <laughs> um, I had a similar thing where I was going to want to go to art school, um, in college. And my dad like looked at me like, no. art school (laughs) (laughs) playing music. That's what you're doing. Yeah. So I did have one of those similar kind of crossroads where where music became the inevitable for me.
0: Right. Right. Were you, um, were you playing with your brothers at that point? Like, were you guys like playing in the garage, like a teen, you know, rock and roll band or or did you you guys kind of all, uh, come
1: together later? I'm in the younger ones of the, of the siblings. Um, so I, um, my first musical experiences were were me playing with um, my peers um, in school. I, my best friend was a drummer. Um, you know, my other best buddy was, um, you know, played bass, and I had another buddy that played guitar. Um, you know, I, and so I'd sit down in, in the science room with that guitar player, and we would um, learn Jimi Hendrix solos, and and he was really good at you know, learning Pink Floyd solo. So he would teach me that. I was good at learning Chuck Berry stuff. So I teach that to him, that guy, he became um, uh, James addiction, David Navarro. Wow. Um, He went on to to do that band and, and he, um, we were, you know, we kind of learned how to play guitar together, We'd sit down the library and and trade parts and licks. And
0: that's so cool. I never knew that. That's really
1: neat. Yeah. So there was, there was a a support group around me musically that I kind of uh, connected into. And then, Um, at some point I did start playing music with my brothers. Um, and we had, uh, um, relatives on the West coast, our only relatives who now live in New Zealand and on my dad's side. And we had put together kind of a whole family band and at 13, I think was the first gig we got paid and we'd go out and play these, um, these church festivals and things like that. And, um, Yeah, so at that 13, I was out making money, playing music.
0: Wow. When did you all move to Minnesota? At what point did uh, Bobby just decide that he wanted to get out of the uh, Bel Air, Hollywood scene as far as, you know, living there?
1: I was a teen... I had just become a teenager. I was a teenager. We were all teenagers at that point. And um, it was... There was a bit of independence that we were lacking where we were living. Um, My dad was not whining down, but he wasn't cutting as many records in Hollywood. And that was really his his reason to be there. Um, He, he, um, and I think that he, you know, he used to say there's two businesses. There's a, there's a record business and there's a a entertainment business. And he, he, his whole life was in this record business where he would do three albums a year. He'd go out and have his songs and you do these tours. And that's just what he did. Um, But amongst all those Dick Clark caravan of the star star tours and all the, Richard Nader tours and the things he would do, he would always go back to the Midwest and and there was a pocket of ballrooms and theaters and he would do the entertainment business. We'd out there, be out there doing hits and that kind of stuff. And um, I think at some point when he started making less records in Hollywood, he wanted a lifestyle change. He wanted to be more family oriented. He wanted to be more about. I think he didn't want to be around the music business as much. Yeah. And so he moved to the Midwest, which is where they're from. My dad's from Fargo, my mom's from Detroit Lakes. That's where they met. And he just wanted his roots for his kids so that we could have more independence and, and kind of get into our own lives in sure. a, a safer way. Ellie, um, LA at that point had changed a lot from when he you know moved there originally.
0: Was that hard for you initially? Like or or did you kind of like adapt to it right away living in Minnesota?
1: So for me, the only the only um, idea I had of what was going on was my parents had a cabin in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, that they bought when my dad had that Susie baby as a hit. Oh, nice. And they were dating. They met at 15. They started dating and they together bought this cabin on Detroit Lakes. And they had that cabin my entire childhood into my adult, you know, young adult life and um so i had spent a lot of summers there most summers there um either for a long portion of time or a short portion of time so i i knew what the minnesota was um when we moved um i didn't realize it was cold and it was a whole lifestyle thing yeah so I, I basically it was the kind of thing where i had those i had relationships from kindergarten I went to a catholic school in, in west in west la and i had the same friends from kindergarten till on so it, it, it was hard to leave those friends and um and find new friends. Um, and, you know, I'd say the Midwest was very different than LA. You, you, you could, you know, this probably, but I always felt like the Midwest was almost like two or three years behind the trends for starters. Right. Right. At that time, you know, internet wasn't happening. It wasn't, it was a different world. And, um, it was just like, I felt like I was thrown into, uh, you know, friend groups that didn't make sense to me. Like right. it, people were nice to me, but it, nothing felt like where I came from. So it was, it was a hard adjustment.
0: Sure not too much later, uh, you started touring with your dad. Is that right? When did he decide that, uh, he was going to have you and, and Jeff on drums and uh, Tommy on bass? And when did he decide to have you guys all actually back him up?
1: So he, you know, he always, my dad was, you know, he always kind of nurtured our journeys individually. Yeah. And, um, when I was a kid, you know, he would take me on the road a lot when I was real young I and mean, I'd spend you know, two, three months in Las Vegas as a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old <clears throat> sitting backstage waiting for him to get it done with his show um you know Bo Italy and Gary U.S. Bonds and you know the Chuck Berry's Shrels, you know all these amazing rock and roll artists that's where I would learn about rock and roll through the Dick Clark shows and um wow. and so I, I I always toured with him as a young kid into my teens and he would bring me out on stage and he'd showcase me oh nice and um, Yes. I remember I would, I did a, you know, a three, four month tour in Europe with them. It was just me, you know, he would showcase me on some songs and then I'd sing with them and then, you know, play some solos and I'd go backstage. And so all of us had different times where we would go on the road with them individually, but it was really, um, it was really when I was my early twenties, you know, he, he, he'd start bringing us up as, as, a family to play with music with him we used to sit around the house playing music anyway so we had a huge repertoire and um it was that point that my early 20s that i started backing him as as you know the v's i guess backing him and then what happened was from there it escalated to he would have us back the entire um the entire show so we'd do these package shows with you know up to six artists sometimes even more and we would, we would go up there and do all the hits, you know, back up all the artists, and then he would come on last and we would <clears throat> do his show.
0: What a, great, uh, what a great musical education for you to have to, to, to learn all these other artists' songs. And uh, man, that must have just been a great learning uh, experience, right?
1: Well, and, you, and what you learn at that age is that you know rock and roll and pretty. You know, they'd be like <laughs> bond, the chiffon showing up, and they left their charts on a plane, and it's like <laughs> Right, songs and you to have go. to learn like yeah, ten just, songs
0: in a, in a ten minutes, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like like you have your phone like now where you I'll just YouTube the songs so I make sure I got all the parts. It's like no. Back then none of that stuff was happening so it's like yeah, okay, just hum me the bridge okay <laughs> right you know I know this song because it's a really famous song but okay, there's that weird part in the bridge. can you hum it to me? Yeah yeah there's a lot of that kind of stuff and, and uh, you know I mean I remember one one time I was with the Shirelles. and 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 uh, I mean I could go on for stories forever but <laughs> one time I was with the Sherrells and, and one of the gals couldn't make the show. I think she got sick, or she just didn't make the show. miss the flight. Yeah. So they they put they put the cleaning lady from the hotel <laughs> in a, in the a Shirelles dress. <laughs> and put her on stage. Oh, so they Two of the Sherelles with a with a cleaning lady. Oh you know, my it's god. Like, dude, that that lady got to become a star for a night. It was just like a lot of you know. There's a lot of duct tape and. uh, and paper clips holding it all together. You know?
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm uh, well aware of all that. I uh, I always wonder, like, does the audience ever realize? They, they they don't, of course, but they they have no idea, like, when that curtain comes up, like, how last minute the big magic of the, trick. Yeah, the big yeah. magic trick. <laughs> <laughs> who was your favorite artist that you? Uh, who who was your favorite that you'd
1: say that you worked with? Do you remember? So I mean, I as a kid Bo Diddley was on a lot of those shows and and Bo Diddley was the first artist that I kind of, I backed up as a, as a guitar player. Yeah. Um, Buddy Knox was another one. Um, I just, you know, for me, Bo Diddley was so exciting. Um, Yeah. Just there's something about him. You know, I I became a guitar player um, because of my love of the fifties and sixties guitar players. Uh, You know, I do, I'd go to these shows with my dad as a kid and I realized that they all had something different that they were doing and they all, in the bigger picture meant something that like chuck berry was the great rock and roll guitar player bo was the bo gilly was the rhythm rock and roll guitar player uh, holly um listening to his records and, and all the different versions of the crickets you know i realized that those guitar parts were written for the songs you know yeah. he's a song guy yeah yeah um, bill haley for me he was the lineage of bebop from charlie christian up to barney castle to pass and then you know scotty moore was the gateway from Nashville to the to Mississippi, you know, Memphis was the the gateway between those two worlds, which is Scotty Moore's playing and Dwayne Eddy had a single voice. I'd watch him play. And it's like, he was a guy that he played his guitar, like a singer. So every one of them became really exciting to me as players. And it made me want to play guitar. Cause I, I saw, I saw that you saw and, the um, power and all that. And then the how Yeah. And I saw from like being backstage and, and like just in awe of, of, like watching you know, Bo Diddley walk on stage for, for an hour or 45 minutes or 40 minutes and he would just Kill. make these weird sounds with his guitar and we'd do these weird dances. He was an entertainer. But most of all, it was, he was chucking along to that rhythm and it's like, that's the magic of Bo Diddley. So I, I used to get excited when I understand their magic. Well, that's the magic. That's why he's magical. He yeah, has, yeah. He's the guy that can do that rhythm thing with the guitar like nobody else. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and they were all very different and there was something to take, there was a takeaway. And um, so for me, but Boadilly was the first one that I was probably seven years old and I'm just like, what's up with this? You know? Yeah, he's, That's what I learned about rock and roll. Truly like, this is what rock and roll is.
0: I saw him once in uh, New Orleans back in the eighties. It was a great opportunity for me to see a, a legend in a small environment and he just killed. I mean, he, I think his family members or, or at least most of them were backing him up. And just the whole concert killed. But at the very end, though, he did this like thirty-minute monologue at how about how he'd been ripped off. <laughs> it was, yeah. It, the audience just went like the whole mood and vibe. He built up to this incredible crescendo and climax with everybody like dancing and shouting and screaming. And then he did this thirty-minute monologue. And I understand like he, him, and all those you know Chuck Berry, Little Richard, all those guys. A lot of '50s artists were ripped off of royalties and whatnot, and I totally understood his uh, his uh, anger at that. But it was just a was well, he
1: a... was one of. But he, you're right, though. He was one of the ones like Little Richard. It was probably a little bit like that, but he didn't bring it into a show. But Bo Diddley was a real vocal one about it. He, he, he was probably the most vocal out of all of them, in my opinion. Yeah. And and he kind of, um, <clears throat> I remember. So I remember some of the shows. He had a thing where he would bring a a, a friar like a chicken fryer yeah. to the shows and he would sit backstage and make chicken for everybody on his tours. <laughs> and he'd like he'd be, you know, with all the grease and everything in the air and he's making chicken, yeah. frying chicken. And, um, I remember being on stage with him one night and he stopped the show. There was a photographer in front of him just kind of going crazy and he stopped the show and said, I don't, I don't go in your kitchen and in your fridge and steal your chicken. Like he was trying to make an analogy <laughs> about chicken because he out chicken. And, um, you know, you still smell the grease in the air and he's making this comment. Um, he, but just he, he he really he really was that guy. And and in a lot of ways, in fairness, um, he he really his lifestyle and, you know, he, how he lived was was not to the the wealth of a little Richard who little Richard lived at the Hyatt down in Hollywood on Sunset or the Hilton, or whatever it was. Yeah. And he, his mansion was up on the hill with people living in it. You know, he he had, even though he donated his money to his faith and did all that, he, you know, he still had a lot of his wealth. But Bo Italy really did get ripped off. And you
0: know? um. Yeah, he totally
1: but, did. But, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, my dad used to, my dad was one of those, he was the boy next door. You know, he, was, he truly was that guy. He didn't talk about politics. He didn't talk about um, business. He didn't talk about any of that stuff to his audience. He just... Didn't really want; he wanted people to show up and feel joy and have a good time, and didn't want to burden people with um, life's hardships or realities. Yeah, sure. So I didn't grow up really getting a lot of that, but, but you know, um, there's probably a lot more to be said about any of that. You know?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I it, I just thought it was an odd choice to uh, end the show with, but um, I totally understood where he's coming from for sure. Um, hey, let's talk a little bit about your. Uh, your involvement as a songwriter and guitar player, after working with all these greats and whatnot, um, when did you become such a, uh, a Gretsch fan and, uh, use that in all your shows?
1: There's two guitars growing up that, that meant rock and roll to me. Yeah. One was the Stratocaster. And to me, that was like the, the ultimate trophy guitar. Um, and the other was the Gretsch because, um, I had two records that I would stare at every day as a five year old. One was was a Buddy Holly record, and one was a, a Eddie Cochran um, legendary master's record that my from Liberty Records that my dad brought home. Black and white, really cool photo with Western pants, and I, and those to me were just the icon guitars. And it, it, the Gretsch to me, um, I was I, at that age. I wanted to be Eddie Cochran, you know. Right. I just, he seemed like he seemed he was kind of my Batman or my Superman, you know. Sure. And I, I just he was a superhero to me. And I thought if I could get those pants, and, and I could get that <laughs> guitar, then then I I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the kid running around with with a Superman cape. You know, yeah. to me that was it. And um, and of course things don't happen that quickly. But when I finally did get a Gretsch, and 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 got I had the Western pants made, and I walked into a into a tailor and I said, can you make me these pants? So I I, I never forgot the dream, and I still have you know those Western pants today. And um, <laughs> it, it it just some things never leave you when you're a kid, you know, I just, I want that. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> someday I'm going to have that. And, uh, so that, that was it. But you know, my dad played Gretches. That was, those were his first guitars too. Oh, wow. I didn't know it at the time because he didn't have any around the house. But if you go back and the Bobby B in the shadows and, and you know, the early sixties, he had a green anniversary Gretch. And sure. uh, at one point I was in Kansas city on the road and I found one and I called my dad and I said, you know, I want to, what do you think of this Gretsch? And he said, you know, buy it, I'll split it with you. Wow. And so we bought it and and, and we owned it together forever. He used it sometimes, I use it sometimes. So I had that and that's on all my earliest records. And then um, I ended up buying a 58, a real 58, which is, in my opinion, is the best of all of them. It's the best version of the 60s Gretsch's. Um, this
0: is the, uh, this is 6120. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so it's a, so it's an orange 6120 with the filtertron pickups it's 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 the six the 58 it's the real deal and that's my main guitar I played all my records and then I later had uh versions of that guitar and I, and I have a collection of them now tons of them but everything goes back to that 58 like it has to have something about it has to be made to be like that that's the guitar that fits me the best
0: goes back to the 58 and those pants right?
1: <laughs> it does and, and, and to me you know 58 I, I you know i collect jukeboxes and i have all sorts of stuff and 58 is the year I, I everything i collect 58 is the year that i like the best you know ford fairlane you know the, the yeah. convertible yeah. Ford yeah 58 had the big wings on it you know it's to me 58 was the uh, art deco kind of um cool and uh, but the gretches they, they they kind of figured it out at that point and then, then they started getting goofy and um, at fifty-eight, they were they were taking parts off the of fifty-sevens and fifty-sixes that they had laying around. They were kind of putting these monsters together, hybrids. But yeah. But the main thing, yeah, hybrids. And it seemed like fifty-nine, they started getting the zero fret in there, and they started and at sixty, they started you know painting the f holes, and it just seemed they went a little nuts. And they got rid of the, the center block that that makes the guitar resonate so nice in mm. fifty-nine. And so fifty-eight is the year that, as far as recording guitars um, the instrument records the best that that one records really well. Um, it just got all this vibration and all this moodiness to it.
0: Cool. And you, uh, you've got some great quotes from people that you, uh, that you worked shows with, uh, Carl Perkins saying, uh, that this cat sure can play Ronnie Wood from this Rolling Stone saying, Robbie's a true guitar slinger. And, um, Sir Paul McCartney saying, these guys sure can play on any stage. And, uh, man, that must have been incredible to uh, not only get those quotes from those guys, but to have them see you in a show, that was must have been pretty cool. Get
1: the exposure, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, I, you know, the crazy thing about growing up in my situation is, you know, I grew up on a stage at a very young age. I, like, I, I didn't necessarily play, and I played some bars, I guess, but I, I, I grew up on, you know, big stages. Yeah. I mean, i go out there and knock them dead, you know, break a leg. So I, I was just a kid, you know, developing – with, you know, marginal amount of ability and, and trying to understand my place in the world and, and in music and and get on stage. Seven thousand people, you know, that's kind of how I grew up and, you know, do it night after night. You know, you're a young kid. Yeah. yeah. And so so I, I kind of, um you know, there's, there's nights where I felt like I sucked, you know, and it's like, God, I'm never going to get this. I just I'm not I'm not any good at this. And, and, and that's the hard part because you get instant feedback from a lot of people, you know. And But on the to- other side of that coin, you know, you grow up and those same stages, stages are comfortable and people welcome you. And, you know, like some of those quotes, I, I was at the London Palladium playing a show that Andy Lloyd Webber was recording um, for a live album. And when it took a guitar solo, I think I was playing like the whole world's rocking. Which is not my first record. Yeah. And and I did a guitar solo and this guy stands up in like the fifth row and he starts taking his scarf and he's waving it around <laughs> you know like in circles <laughs> while I'm playing my solo. <laughs> and uh, and I'm kinda looking at I'm doing my solo and it's like, wow, that's Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones. And uh and it was. I got done with the show and he invited me to his to uh his house afterwards. Oh wow. Uh, and um and and you know, and then we we recorded all night at his house in his home studio. Oh and, my god. And uh and then next thing I you know he's trying to get me to date his daughter and, and the things going on and on. And I ended up staying in London and hanging out and partying with them for, you know, a couple of weeks and becoming great friends with them. And, and and so th- this is the kind of stuff that, that it's the flip side of the, of the young kid who can't, can't figure it out to, to all of a sudden you're on stages and these incredible people are showing up and, and, and they want to be your friend and they want to talk music with you. And, uh, and that quote from, from Ronnie Wood, who we read is a, uh, the Harrington club, which is a club that he owns in London. And he, he's eating soup and he reaches, he looks over me over the soup and pauses and says, you know, you're a guitar slinger. That's what you are. <laughs> he's, he's telling me who I am. You know, it's like, he's encouraging me but saying, this is what you are. This is who you are. Wow. And, uh, you know, you're going to go home and you're a guitar slinger and this is, this is how it's going to work for you. Very cool. You know, just people that wanted to kind of make me feel okay on the planet, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Talking about some of your, uh, current albums and uh, singles you got out you got, a, you got a one called a forever kind of love and good morning and yep. as well as uh, your last album uh, double
1: spin is that correct so in june 9th um i have a, a vinyl record coming out and it's called double spin and what it is it's a collection of my last three eps so oh, it's, cool. it's the newest single it's the newest single forever kind of love and good morning and then it's the the ep before that and the EP before that, the one I, I I did an EP called the Blue Moon Project, which which I wrote uh, for the Alzheimer's Foundation of America to, and I donate all the proceeds to them. Um, and so it, it's all of those together in one. And um,
0: you said that was the Blue Moon Project. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, Blue Moon Blue for for Alzheimer's Foundation of America. And I well, my dad, my dad passed away from Alzheimer's, and in his final year leading up to that, uh, him and I together got involved with the Alzheimer's foundation to try and raise awareness and, and, um, oh, that's cool. and money. And so we, I did the record and with my dad and, um, and Wayne Carson, who wrote the letter for the box tops and you're always on my mind for Elvis and Willie Nelson and a ton of hits, tons yeah. of
0: hits. Yeah.
1: Um, And he and I wrote um, uh, uh, songs the entire time And I'm still to this day putting out records where him and I co-wrote songs. So so he's on every one of my records, either either half the record or maybe sometimes more uh, co-writes with him. And uh, he signed me to his publishing company. And then we just kind of stockpiled songs. And and whenever I do a record, I I go into that stockpile and I work out whatever, you know, the one I like the best that day.
0: So cool. So cool. Um, Hey, let's talk a little bit about this uh, famous cruise that you did once that you you were booked on and uh, that you had a kind of a, kind of a little bit of a surprise once the curtain came up. Can you tell me a little bit about
1: that? <laughs> so, so now we're going to do, now we're gonna do this, is, this is like, this is like behind the curtain band talk. This yeah. is like us in the dressing room, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is, so this, is, I, when you say, you know, you were booked, I, I, that's totally accurate because I didn't book it myself. It right. was, uh, I had played a, a party in Canada, a private party in the guy was really great to work for. And he says, I do all these theme cruises like, like motocross and country music. And he kind of went down the list. I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. He goes, can I book you for one? I said, sure. It was one of those times I was on the road and I didn't have time to answer phone calls. And I was, you know, people would call for shows and my, my office and that's my wife. She would help me out. Yeah. You know, you take some of these field, some of these calls. So she did. And she goes, yeah, I booked you on a cruise. You're going to love it. It's great. So I ended up in Florida on on a 10 day cruise. I think I was gone almost two weeks. And, um, it it was, I got down there and I I was on stage first night in this theater, 400 seat theater. And I started the show with a a -a swingling, which is from my my first record. And then a million moons, both my first record. And, um, and I'm looking around and the lights are bright. I I get get into my third song and I'm I'm like, man, everybody in this room is naked. (laughs) It's, it's like, it's like, it's like the, it's the opposite of like one of those dreams as a kid where you go to school with no clothes on. It's like, I have clothes on and nobody else has clothes on.
0: And no. you're singing a song called swingling and million, million moons. moons.
1: <laughs> yeah. Just get done singing million moons. I'm looking around going, this is everybody in this room is naked. <laughs> so I, I yeah, it was, it's true. So I was honest. I was the artist. Uh, I had three shows in, in that 10 days cruise. Um, it was a swingers cruise. So I spent 10 days with everybody being naked, and it was bizarre. And um, so they're
0: they're naked twenty four seven, or are they just naked at your show. I mean, they're walking around the cruise ship naked. They were too? naked
1: twenty four seven, or in like <laughs> a non uh, You so, know, was so bizarre. you're standing. They'd go to they go eat dinner, and they'd hand them a towel because they're sitting on the chairs, you know. And and it was a sh- sh- cruise ship, and and it would be crazy. So they, you couldn't do it like in the harbor or whatever. So you get into international water, and they'd come on and I'd come and say, okay, you know, you can take your clothes <laughs> off now. So I spent ten days on on the helicopter pad, you know. I, I'm like I like ten days on the helicopter pad. I'd I could go up there and read my book and bring my guitar and and that was the only place on the ship that I could you know get away from it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got, oh, and then I got God. home and and, and 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 I met my wife and my two little kids at Disneyland in Florida. Yeah. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, this is, my, my my wife's going, man, you seem so really off. Like, did something <laughs> yeah. happen? You just seem like really up, uptight and kind of upset about something. I'm like, yeah, well, you booked me on a swingers cruise for <laughs> yeah. 10 days, sweetheart. It's
0: fantastic. We all have those uh, special gigs in our lives that we remember fondly, huh?
1: Yeah, the, the ones that, that, that leave a dent. They never leave you. Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly.
1: And I you know people have their lifestyles, but yeah, I, I'm... I'm I am, I am American, you know, I am apple pie and Chevrolet. That's I grew My dad was like that. I'm like that. I just, I'm very straight laced. So pretty much a shocker.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine one of my favorite, uh, experiences with you, Robbie. Um, and there's quite a few of those, uh, I, I, for those that don't know, I've had Robbie on our winter dance party shows quite a few times. And, uh, yes. we also did a buddy Roy and Elvis tour back in the early two thousands. And. Um, But uh, one time, I don't know why or where we were at, but we ended up in Lyle, Tennessee. You brought me to Jerry uh Allison's house, and um, that was such a fun, fun time. Like, we pulled up in the garage, and there was, like, J.I. and Sonny and maybe Joe B., too, and they were all drinking beer, and there was, like, you know, a bunch of beer cans in the garage, you know, empty beer cans, (laughs) and and then J.I. just... uh, took us out to dinner with his wife, uh, Joanne is her name? Is that her name? Uh, Joni. Joni. Jay, I took us out with Joni and, um, we just had a great time. And, um, I remember him, uh, telling that story about the night that uh, Keith Richards spent at his place clutching the, uh, Everly Brothers guitar. Do you remember that?
1: I do, I do. I mean, I remember pulling up, and they're sitting in the, on their coolers, drinking their beer, which is the crickets, basically. That's what how they were. Yeah. And um, and, and they're staring at a ditch digger. That Jay, I just bought a ditch digger. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> it was like at so, it. yeah, look at that. Yeah. The ditch digger. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of stories that night, a lot of memorabilia, and, and you know fun demos that he was playing for us that nobody oh, yeah. had ever heard the letter from, from the Beatles that was, you know, saying that they got their name from the crickets. He had that framed in his office, but he, um, every brother's guitar that was not smashed at Nutsbury farm when they broke up. So it, was, it would be the one that, uh, Don was playing. Yeah. And then, and then the other one, which, which Phil was playing was smashed. And, and then they, I think they came out did like one song and, and, he, phil smashed his guitar and they broke up on on stage yeah and so you know the they, the history of the ebbly brothers goes back with j.i a long way i mean like kissed you yeah, those great drum parts on those records that's j.i he played out of the early ebbly brothers records yeah and so they've been friends forever toured together with holly and all that and um and so i think it was a uh, don gave uh j.i the set so he had the neck of the broken guitar and then the 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 one that did play the, the, the sister guitar. Sure. And when Keith Richards was staying with them unannounced, he showed up at his house and lived there for like two weeks. Um, he, J.I. said he came down in the morning and, and, and Keith Richards was, was naked in a, in a, in a um, blanket with a shotgun in one hand <laughs> and the guitar sleeping. And, and so he took a picture, you know, and he said, and later asked, said, what, what was that all about? He said, I was guarding the guitar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he was guarding the guitar, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's guarding the guitar. like, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's like, nobody's going to take this guitar from me.
1: <laughs> you know, J.I., he's like an uncle to me. And, and um, I knew that you're, not only are you an enthusiast towards Holly and the crickets music, but you're also a historian and, and you appreciate um on a deeper level all of it than than just oh singing yeah songs and so I, I knew that you those were connections that were um important you know oh, on a yeah. friendship level it's very different than than being a, f- a fan you know
0: you absolutely know? no i mean j.i was just uh he's the, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time i mean he just so many detailed great creative uh beats he came up with that um I just, I just always have been impressed. And, uh, on top of that, he was just a funny, uh, nice character, really, really great
1: guy. He was, you know, and that, the farm that you visited, um, that, you know, all, all those crickets lived with an j- adjacent property of that. I think Nancy Griffith lived out there. Whalen had a place out there. They all kind of lived in that that same uh, block. It's a, a, a lovely, mile. lovely area. Yeah, I love that area. It really is. And and, and um and yeah. J.I., you know, in his free time, he he did farm. He he would farm the fields and <clears throat> we cut a record on his porch, his back porch. Um my dad and I and and Sonny and Joe B and J I we cut uh, a handful of songs and one of them came out, it was, um, blue days, black nights. And we literally, uh, I mean, I picked up the guitar that was in J.I.'s, um, living room and, and Hey, what song you guys want to play? What do you want to play? It was so spontaneous. I, I think we cut every song like on the first take. Wow. And that... then they put out one, they put out one of them on an album. And, um, yeah, it was like very spontaneous. And the next thing I was like, you know, right. um, producer there and you, there, Greg Ladani setting up mics and, and uh, you know, we're just like, just playing off the top of our heads. It's like in, in me and Sonny, you, you take this solo, I'll take that solo, we'll play together like this. They're just really off the cuff, kind of um, like the old days of rock and roll. You know, Yeah.
0: You yeah. I've heard some of those and they're they're fantastic. I really, really like the feel and the sound of those recordings. They're great.
1: You know, that's where my dad, his magic was in the moment. He, he you know, he, he was spontaneous, you know, he loved rock and roll for the spontaneity. He didn't care about though he sang in perfect pitch and he had an an enormous talent he was more interested in capturing the feel of the song than his own per- personal performance. You know, he, he really wanted to have a vibe on things. Yeah. And um, that's, but that's that generation of rock and roll. They understood that, you know, in, in LA, the business changed from, from he, a lot of his records, you cut them live in one, two, three takes uh, most of them in, in one take. And he said he didn't like the business when it changed in like the late '60s when they started doing multi-tracking because he just he lost a connection with the material, didn't feel the vibe anymore. The band and he liked cutting stuff live. So
0: very cool, very cool. Hey, uh, wanted to congratulate you on uh, your induction into the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was in 2022. Is that right?
1: Uh, That was I mean yes, yes they did that last October. I think we did that. Very cool. <clears throat> quite an honor
0: what was that um, like what was that like when they uh presented you with that uh, plaque it
1: was it was surreal you know it, it's it kind of goes back to what I was saying about my dad and, and that family aspect where um you know I've met so many people over the year years you know that I've known since I was a kid yeah and um that have watched me develop on stages my entire life and I remember doing the acceptance speech for that and it's just like looking in the audience of people and it's like, God, I've I've known you playing this ballroom or that ballroom or that fair, you know, the Des Moines state fair. I I know these people from when I was just a young kid. Yeah. And, um, I grew up, you know, on staring at these people from the stage my entire life. So it was almost like, I felt like a family, like a, like my family was was giving me a prize or something. Oh, that's um, neat.
0: That's really neat. It did. It, it, It was
1: special, you know?
0: Right on. And, um, what about uh, any upcoming projects that uh, listeners should know about? Um, I know they can uh, find your tour schedule at RobbieV.com, but any uh, creative projects coming up?
1: I am. So I'm, I'm working on, um, I'm working on a record right now. Um, and it's it's hard for me because I do the writing and then I do the recording and I've, I kind of have two different ways of seeing them both. So I, I try and get as much material put together, then I go and start recording, but um, I'm wor- I decided, um, to cut a record with my old friend of mine, Beach Cheney. and Beach was, um, lead singer of a band called The Suburbs when I was growing up. I was 15 years old and I warmed them up on a stage, um, around Minneapolis and he liked me. So he, he wanted to be my friend. He was about 10 years older than me, but he just was a monster writer, monster talent and a wild personality. He seemed to me like a Jerry Lewis kind of guy where he just... He got rock and roll on a gut level That's cool and it wasn't heady and so he he became a mentor uh to me and as a kid he kind of encouraged me to do things and we wrote a little bit back then and i always wanted to do a record but he was he was in this suburbs they were assigned to am records they were putting out singles and having french hits and touring and it never quite made sense and um so recently we we were talking on the phone and and we said let's do some writing and I, I at a point where I needed to make a shift and do something. Every one of my records is different than the last. I don't want to re-record it, You know, this, I don't want to do two records that are the same. I right. can do shows like that all day long. That's what shows are for. Right. But I want records to be like, you know, like a painting, this painting looks like that. This painting looks like that. I want them to be very different. So I was looking for the next project anyway. And I thought, you know, we should cut that record that we should have done when I was 15. You oh, know? that's and, cool the way we're approaching it is so organic and natural and it's, it's really, it's really fun.
0: That's cool. Are, are you guys like uh, sending emails back and forth with different lyrics or are you more like uh, zooming or, or FaceTiming each other and doing like a session, like a writing session? Is that how you're working?
1: It? Yeah. So we, every Tuesday we put aside a few hours Yeah. and we FaceTime uninterrupted and we'll have a long conversation about what's going on with each other and we'll, write a song about it. And, um, and we'll, we'll get done with, we'll get done generally either repairing a song that we wrote the week before or writing a new song, Cool. but every Tuesday, like clockwork in a discipline, we do it. And it's, it's been going on for a long time. So we, we just stockpile songs. and We're trying to pick the right ones, but, um, I think next week or in the next couple of weeks I get off the road and then I'm going to go in the studio and we'll continue the Tuesday thing. You know, so we get the temples right and get the production ideas going, and and I'll start cutting the record um, in my studio before we bring it to a bigger studio. So it's it's. I feel like the project's going to go on for a while. Um, it's you know you know it how it is. I mean, oh, records yeah. are so hard to make. So they're, hard they're to make, hard and to uh, make.
0: there's it's like time to, consuming. Time trying to have a timeline for them now is almost. It's like why limit yourself? You know, like you, you just got to let the project find its own course and and let it. Uh, you know, give it enough breathing space to make it happen so you're not compromising anything, you know? that's, that, that's It
1: is, and I, and, I, and I don't work on a timeline. I mean, I'm not good at it. So, yeah. it's like, like the, so I got signed to a label, uh, another label deal uh, last year, and I, I owed them a record, and I, I missed the finish date because I just couldn't, I didn't want to cut the, I didn't want to do the material that was left over from the last record, and then a couple new songs. I just, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I wanted something totally different. So I said, you know, let's just put out this, uh, double spit vinyl product and, and we'll put, you know, you put the last three records on it. I've never had vinyl before. It'd be fun. And then I'll I'll cut it a whole new record when I feel like I find what I'm looking for. Yeah. Cause I, you know, how it goes, you know,
0: sure. You just, yeah. you
1: got to do something that feels honest and feels right. I don't, I don't, I've done an independent business for so many years that I don't feel like I want to just do something for the sake of doing it. I want it to be something that, is heart-connected, you know?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I hope uh, maybe someday we can uh, write a song or two together. That'd be fun.
1: Well, I want to do that. I mean, I, I think as a part of this project, this this will be like an EP, and then I'm going to take pieces of it. And I want to do a bigger project, which is, you know, a friends and family kind of record and get my daughter involved. And and then my immediate friends that kind of I've been musical with over the years, obviously you're part of that picture. People that, that I feel like are on my journey and, and I wanted to write songs with, or I have written songs with, but I have never put anything out. Yeah. So that'll be the, the that'll be the, the bigger picture of what I'm doing right now.
0: That's a good idea. Friends and family. That's a really good project idea.
1: That's cool. Well, you know, and all these are just like little photo albums or, or paintings that, you know, when I'm gone, it's just gonna be a painting on the wall anyway. And so it's something about, you know, getting the chapters of your life together with the people that were part of your life. Yeah. And that, that's kind of a, you know, I I grew up in a legacy, and <clears throat> if I'm going to make any contribution to it, I'd, I'd rather tell a story about, you know, what I'm, my surrounding to add to it, as opposed to recycling the legacy I grew up in, you know.
0: Right, right, right. Are your daughters uh, taking interest in music?
1: They do. They both uh, sing in the in the choir cool. at church on Sundays, and they, they've done it since they were young, really young, like I did. That's where I learned to sing. Like That put me in the choir in first grade. They yeah. sang in the choir forever. and um and they they are the same way. every Sunday, every holiday. That's what I love about holidays to listen to them sing. And um they both uh, the, the older one, Allison, she plays piano and guitar and sings. The younger one, uh, Kaliana, plays ukulele and guitar oh, wow. and sings. and um and they're both really talented in in different ways. I'd say the the, the older one, is more talented than I was at that, at her age. Wow. She just very has a really unique memory and connection to music. Um, the younger one has the the unique edge that I had when I was young, where I did things my own way. You know, I, I had my own approach to things, the younger is like that. So it, it's the two sides of, of talent where one is, and one could probably be a session artist. Another one could be a, you know, a rock star, you know, it's that kind of thing, you know, yeah. pick the one you want. Yeah, but yeah. I, it, it's funny, I, all these years later, I get my mom, you know, saying, would you please just you know, be a circus clown or a rodeo clown or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be better than being in the music business. Yeah. You'd be a good rodeo clown, Rob. You'd be good. You could take a hit. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that hit is going to be less painful than going to the music
0: business. Is that why you uh, paint clowns, because of what your mom
1: said? <laughs> <laughs> so my dad was a clown painter, and he taught me how to paint oh. and do music. So, so when I grew up, being a kid you know really young kid learning about you know family skills i guess yeah him and i would sit around and, and paint together and oh that's he'd so bring cool he his oil paints and you know he liked to paint clowns and, and 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 so he would say hey paint a clown and so he, he just was into it it's like a comfort food for me painting clowns it's like the it's it's if i don't feel like painting a landscape or something you know english uh, house Tudor house or something. Then and then you know, clowns are always the go-to.
0: Probably also has a brings you closer to your dad. I mean, you know what I mean? Even though he's, you know, not with it us is, any, anymore. Because I, yeah, I, I had the same kind of. We were painting clowns, but my dad always played piano when he got home from work. And when oh, I would wow. when I'd go visit them uh, at the holidays, I would sit there and we'd play Christmas carols together. I'd be on a guitar, or and we'd play all kinds of songs, Hank Williams songs. Uh, Uh, He loved uh, Fats Waller songs like Ain't Misbehavin', that kind of stuff. Wow. So, yeah, I mean,
1: uh, we would. So is that where you got your music from? It was your dad?
0: Pretty much. I mean, him and my brother. My brother was, uh, George was like a child music prodigy where he was, we have home movies of him reading sheet music when he was seven years old you know while he's playing guitar along with my dad who was playing some song you know that had sheet music you know (laughs) it's
1: like so the holly thing did was that like just an opportunity when you were in chicago to do that as 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 an artist slash actor because you were in both fields or was it something that as a kid i mean i know you loved eddie cochran like i did i know that you you loved 50s 60s music but were you a holly fan at a really young age too
0: basically I got all my siblings like you, I was the youngest in the family and, um, my, yep. my mom finally admitted a few years ago that I was a happy accident. <laughs> oh, so, uh, yeah. So I came along pretty late in my mom and dad's life. And, um, so I got all my brothers, my sister albums, which were, um, you know, Beatles and then Jerry Lee Lewis yep. and, uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly. And then when that, uh, Gary Busey movie came out you know I at the time I I didn't know the historical facts about Buddy Holly which that movie has a lot of incorrect stuff in it and whatnot but um right as an introduction to his music and just the the idea of when I saw that movie Robbie I was like that's what I want to do like wow that just looks like so much fun like performing on a stage and having people clap and and bringing joy to people I was like that's that's what I want to do
1: well, so and you do that really well. And and I mean, but I've seen you, you know, you you can do you've done Hank Williams, you've done um Carl Perkins, and you you've done all these guys really well. So you you have a, a solid um insight and you get it on, on a on a real important level that you can oh, go and perform these things so well. Thanks. Honestly, I- and, I, and I've watched you because I have shared stages with you. I mean, I um you you the way you approach singing is very much the way I think Holly approached it from what my dad would say. Um so my dad, you know, he said, he said, singing live is one thing, but singing, singing for records is different. Yeah. You say that in the studio, you sing really small and you sing very, um, precise. Yeah. And like Kenny Rogers was like that, like, like, like Roy Arbison, he was like, he's whispering when you'd sing in the studio. Right. And, um, Holly in the studio was like that too. He's, he's really soft, really concise, really controlled. And, um, but with a nice tone and, and that's how my dad was. He would cut records like that. Would, and, but live, he would struggle to do his live shows because it was a different kind of voice to sing live. And, um, and when I started working with you, that's the first thing I know. It's like, how oh, you do that one thing where you sing real um, real precise in a small voice and it comes off really big. It's the same school that my dad would talk about.
0: Oh, that's, that's interesting. Thank you. I, I, uh, I don't know if that's partly because of my limitations as a singer <laughs> or... Uh, you know, I, I I do try to get across to an audience that, uh, I, uh, I don't know, I guess a sincerity or something when you're singing, like really try to connect with them. I kind of learned from the good, good singers yeah. and like those people. And as far as, you know, Hank and Carl Perkins and Buddy and, you know, all those greats, I just have such a true fascination and um, appreciation, really, I guess is a better word. I just have a true appreciation for what they did and what they, uh, what they mean to me. And I'm countless of others, um, just their incredible talent. And, um, just try to, uh, if I have like a, a quarter of their talent to be able to, uh, express that to people and bring them joy is, is the greatest gift that uh, I can give. And, And also it's the greatest gift for me to receive that in the back from people that, um, enjoy coming to a show, you know, that's, that's, what's kind of what it's all about really, you know,
1: but it is. And, and like, I've, you know, I've performed with you and you, you, people just love your shows. I mean, just, they just, they really do get a sense of joy and, um, and, and all the, you know, all the levers are cranking in the right direction. It's such a fun show. And, you know, and, and, and at the same token, you know, what I appreciate about what you do is that, um, you know, you, you it, it, there's a history, you know, American music history that, it's so important. I watch your shows and, and you know, there's people that were there the first time through, but then there's families and there's younger people and there's people, you know, our age and that had parents with vinyl records. And it's such a cross section of audience of, you almost become like a historian um, of Amer- American um, music and Amer- American history. Cool. Um, I think that's such a great role to play in life as, as an artist. And um, there's a whole legacy of, of of rock and roll there that that people learn about and, and it's just it's such a it's just a great disposition on the planet you know
0: yeah thanks yeah it's um it's fun you know it, 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 what you and i get to do for a living is uh we're very blessed and very fortunate you know it's like when i first came to hollywood i was uh slinging potato chips around in vending machines. I had a vending machine route to make a living <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah. it was uh, not fun work. I was grateful for it because it kept me uh, afloat and all that. But um, once I uh, started making a living singing and playing guitar, that was like, I'm living my dream. You know, this is all, this is what I wanted. And, and um
1: yeah,
0: it's really, it's really fantastic. So.
1: The only other job I've ever had, because I've done, I've done music my entire life. The yeah. only other job, is when i was a teenager i worked at a greenhouse the 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 guy that owned the greenhouse said go up there and and fix those uh broken glass windows up there so i I, as a kid i'm up there on the the top of the greenhouse glass windows spread out trying to hang on while i'm fixing glass panes (laughs) and you know my shirt off and the local paper came by and i suppose it just looked about as dangerous as anybody could possibly, it's like this guy, you can get sliced. So I'm up <laughs> yeah. there and, and I made the front cover of the, of the local newspaper with me <laughs> fixing glass windows on a greenhouse. And I look back now and I thought, you know, that's probably way more dangerous than the music business. It's like, I probably made a good <laughs> yeah. choice. Then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not I, be the guy
1: that fixed it. That's like the rodeo clown gig, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. I had a lot of horrible jobs like that when I was a teenager too, but, um, I won't go into them now because they're pretty horrible, but, um, well, Robbie, man, this has been great. I, uh, I really appreciate you spending, uh, time with us here and, um, Hey man, I hope I get to see you soon and work together soon. And let's, let's do that, uh, vacation thing we talked about too, a little artistic retreat. That'd be fun.
1: Let's do it. And I really appreciate this, John. And you know, you, I've said this before, but you're you're one of my favorite talents out there and you're one of my favorite friends. So thank you for, uh, thank you you for doing this today.
0: Appreciate it, Robbie. (laughs) You have a great one. And uh, say hello to your lovely wife, Mary, and and your kids for me, too. It's a great family.
1: Sounds great. Thanks, John.
0: Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. There he goes, Robbie V., ladies and gentlemen. What a great guy and great friend. You can find Robbie at RobbieV.com and check out all his music there, his schedule, and maybe some videos and all kinds of fun stuff there. Check him out on Facebook, Instagram. He's everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, had a great time. Please be safe out there. We'll see you next time on Down the Line.